0: Lord God, it's good to be in your presence today. And Lord, I pray that your love would be manifested in this place, and that it would convict every heart, every person, that Lord, your love and that you, that they matter to you. In Jesus name, Amen. Amen. The story of John, of the book of John, chapter 13, is a very familiar one to many of us. And if you've been going to church for any amount of time, um, you could probably recite it. And this narrative is one that you have most likely reenacted um, as you, whenever you participated in what we call the ordinance of humility or uh, the footwashing service. And part of the text is actually in the bulletin. We won't read it right, right away. But it's such a familiar story. It preaches itself. But it's worth retelling again and again and on this day because um, it renews our vision of what compels us to come at the table together as a church family. And what we have here in John chapter 13 is a summation of the life of Christ and the reason for the life of Christ. In these last moments that's recounted in, in this chapter of John, um, on the eve of the cross, we have it all. It's a familiar drama. We have the love of God. We have the betrayer. We have the fight between disciples. And if we step back and look at the big picture of John in, in the chapter 13, we see a great controversy, a battle between good and evil, and a battle between God and Satan. But how will God win this battle? And the word says that his weapons of a choice will be a towel and a basin. God wins. God washes feet at this point, it's really easy to say, okay, we get it, foot washing is symbolic, and, um, and we could easily become philosophical about it because in our world today, we don't go around washing strangers' feet except for days like this when we awkwardly join together in a communion Sabbath, and then we move on. It's not real life. But if we look at it from a philosophical distance, We will miss the reason, the core reason, our our raison d'etre, our reason for being as a church. Jesus knew his time had come. He knew he was going back to the Father. In about 24 hours, he would be dying on this cross. And his disciples get into a fight on who deserves to be the greatest in this new government that Jesus will establish with his disciples. Now, who doesn't want to be great Nobody wants to feel like a failure or less than. And the core desire of being great or wanting to be a success, maybe it's to get acceptance, maybe it's maybe to get love or to feel that we really matter and that we're really known. But Jesus doesn't have the trappings of success by our standards. After three and a half years, one could say that he is um, his ministry could, could be considered a failure. In the previous chapter, preceding chapter in John chapter 12, it says that there were some leaders who actually believed Jesus. They believed in Jesus. But they were not admitted in public. They were too afraid to lose their, um, the admiration of the people. They were too afraid to lose their standing in the church. And the text says that they preferred the praise of men over the praise of God. God's version of greatness looks looks a lot like failure to us. This is why Isaiah 53 says in great shock, it may be in awe, but in great shock, who would have believed it? Who would have believed our message? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now those who did follow Jesus, those who did believe, um, left Jesus. And we know that at least there were 12 that stayed with him. And none of them had a clue. And one of them would betray him. And yet there's no bitterness in Jesus when um, John 13 chapter 1, it begins in John 13, 1 to 2, it says this, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them The full extent of his love. So it was around Passover, and this dinner, the special dinner that Jesus was um, organizing, was hosting, was not going to be a special dinner to mark the success of the group. It was not going to be some prizes uh, being passed out or some pass on the back. This is a very solemn moment, this Passover dinner. And we're not going to read it here, but Luke 22 gives us um, sort of a context as to why Jesus ended up washing his disciples' feet. According to Luke, uh, Jesus sent his disciples to make preparation for the Passover. They found everything as Jesus has said they found the house with the upper room, the food. Everything they needed, just as Jesus had said. So they gathered in that room, this upper room, usually reserved for very important people. So they gathered there. Everything is The table is set. The food is set. Everything is perfect, except there's one thing missing. Or rather, there's one person missing. Where is the servant to wash the feet? And of course, none of them were going to volunteer. And they looked at each other. And at one point, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. So the disciples, they look at each other and says, who could do such a thing? And that's when the fight broke out about who would be the greatest. At that moment, Jesus strips to his underwear and starts to wash feet. No one wanted to wash each other's feet because it was nasty. I mean, when you walked in sandals in the way that you did back then, that means picking up dirt and and um, mud and poop and um, maybe there might be cuts or worms or bugs encrusted in the crevices that needed to be scrubbed out and oiled. It was the job of the host to wash the feet. In fact, the host would do it by proxy with a slave. Now this was such a low job that a slave that was Jewish would not be assigned to do that kind of job. If the host had a slave that was a foreigner, they would assign that job to that foreign slave. It was such a lowliest of job and most likely, the servant that would do that kind of job was a girl. So Jesus strips bare in that role of a lowliest of slaves. And it was very extreme and too much for Peter at least. When Jesus comes to Peter, Peter says, Rabbi. Now, we don't know the kind of tone that Peter used when Peter said, rabbi. But we know that Peter is scolding him when he says, rabbi. He is reminding Jesus of who Jesus is. Because in those days, the disciples washed the rabbi's feet and not the other way around. Peter seemed um, ashamed of Jesus. They had been so caught up on arguing on who was the best and the greatest, that none of them had volunteered to wash the feet of Jesus. It would have meant, probably, that they would have been in the position to wash the other people's feet as well. Jesus, Peter said to Rabbi, are you going to wash my feet too? It wasn't a real question, but a rebuke for Jesus to act right. God's way is not our way, the way of the kingdom is strange to us and, um, but Jesus wants to show us a new way, the new way of life with him. So Jesus tells Peter, you will have no part of me if I don't wash your feet. Now Jesus is not telling them you're not going to be, I'm not going to be your friend if you don't let me do this. And maybe in a sense he was. But you know in my concordance when I see you will have no part of me, it directs me to Deuteronomy. 12, verse 12, in that word, you will have no part of me, it's that same word as inheritance. What Jesus is saying is that, you know, if you don't let me wash your feet and admit your need of me, you will not have the inheritance of the Father or of me, of that life that, um, uh, that is promised. We choose Satan when we decide to, to do what we think is best. Judas was choosing. Judas was choosing what he thought was best. But Peter said, wash my feet, wash my head, wash my hands too. Peter loved Jesus so much that he didn't want to lose that friendship. So the thought of being separated from from Jesus was too much. But when Peter said, wash my head and my hand, it sounds a lot like what the priest did before the ceremonial practice. Uh, But the thing is, Jesus is not bound by um, societal uh, prescriptions. And he's not bound by the religious one either. So when Peter said, Yes, wash my head, my feet, just like the priest did before the ceremonies, but it's not needed in this moment because the personified Passover lamb is standing in the midst of them. Jesus is focused on their feet, on preparing them to go and tell others of the good news, though they don't know it yet. As Paul would say in Romans, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. The argument of who is the greatest has no place here. That is not what Jesus has been about all this time he's been with them. He's about to leave them, and it's very urgent that they understand who Jesus is and what he is about. You know, I was a newly graduated nurse, and, um, and I was going to do my first IV Uh, with no uh, supervision. And this patient uh, had a procedure very early in the morning. And I was watching the clock constantly and reviewing in my mind all the steps that I was going to do. I had my little two-by-two. I was going to have the needle just so, the four-by-four gauze. I had a clean field. Reviewing in my list the, the, the steps on how to prepare to do this IV and so I knew it was four o'clock because I kept watching the time and when four o'clock uh, came I went to I don't remember her name but Mrs. X, X's room in that, that hospital. So I walked in that hospital and um, so I laid out as I was ha- as I had reviewed it in my list my little uh, clean field the needle yes check the tools etc Then I turned to the patients and uh, and I could see there was a, a soft light from the outside and it was also a light from above her bed uh, right uh, where her hand was and I could see her hand in um, that beautiful bulging vein ready for a stick. So I took this patient's hand and for good measure, you know, I did this to kind of wake it up a little bit more. And apparently nurses don't do that anymore. But back then, right? To kind of wake it up. And out of the blue, I mean, before I could do anything else, suddenly um, the patient's other hand Um, lifted up and descended violently on mine and I jumped back I was mortified because you know I had forgotten when I was all the important steps I had forgotten one important step I had not said her name and more than that I had not introduced myself I had not told her why I was there and um, I was very apologetic, and I said, I'm so sorry, Mrs. So-and-so, this is who I am, and this is what I'm trying to do, and she said, okay, honey, you go ahead, and she gave me permission to continue, but not before letting me know in certain terms and through her pal that she was more than just a vein and a hand. She wasn't a project um, for me to show my prowess or uh, a project to add to my badge of accomplishment. She was a person, and she let me know she was a person, Jesus kneeling with the basin uh, in the towel must have been this wake up, pow slap in the middle of this self centeredness. The men around them were not steps to jump over or to be used for their own selfish ambition. They were family, they were brothers. Jesus had told them to remember this moment of the foot washing. The disciples must have remembered how Jesus had washed the feet of Judas, the betrayer, as well, and realized the depth of God's love for them. Titus 3, 3 uh, verses 3 and 6, this is how, the, how he says it. He says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, hating each other. But then the kindness and the love of God, of our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of our righteous thing that we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out generously to Christ our Savior. And listen to this on verse 7. It says, so that having been justified by his grace that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, Jesus said in John 13, uh, 10, he says that our feet will get dirty over and over again and we'll have to come to Jesus over and over again as we go forward in his name. So God wins with a basin and a towel. Through his humiliation at that moment or preview of the ultimate humiliation, he shows us the full extent of God's love for us. And I know you're familiar with this passage I'm about to read, but I I want to read it anyway for you. It's Philippians 2, 6 to 8. It says that Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You know, generally... I don't stop at gas station stations when it's really late at night or if I'm by myself. But about three years ago, I, um, I was on my way home after uh, an event, and it was definitely after midnight. And for some reason, I couldn't wait until the morning to, um, to stop and, and fill up the, my, my car tank. So I pulled off the highway and went into one of the gas stations, and there was, to my surprise, after midnight, a long line of people, about like 10, 10 people Uh, already in line waiting at the cashiers. And, you know, I went in line and and about three people down from me there was a a young man that really stood out and uh, he had these spiky hair piercing in um, unusual places and a dark eyeliner against his very, very pale skin. And he had knobs in his ear that pulled his eye lobe all the way to his shoulder. So I stood in line and... um, I pulled out my cell phone just to occupy myself my until I, it was time to my turn up, up in the line. And I remember thinking and looking up and saying, is it worth being in this line at this time of night or morning? And I went back to my phone, and in the background, I started hearing this obnoxious man saying obnoxious things. And, uh, and more and more, he was becoming um, uh, angry. And I had a distinct impression that the angry rant was directed towards me. So I looked up and my eyes met immediately with these really angry, weird eyes. And this man is telling me, I've been trying to talk to you and I want to talk to you. Why don't you talk to me? And I didn't know this man. I've never seen him in my life. So I think I told him, you know, leave me alone. But ignoring him didn't seem to work. And the people around me, we were looking the other way, except for that young man with the spiky hair. By now, he was near the front of the line. So he turned around, he looked at me, and he looked at that rude, crazy man, uh, and he gave that man a very stern look. And suddenly, this young stranger came up beside me, and without even touching me, opened his arm and, and led me to the front. Of the line. My, and his eyes never left that angry man. I did not expect my rescuer would come in the form of a tattooed guy with um, oversized earlobe, but there he was. God's grace is that Jesus came in the back of the line to bring us up with him. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. God's grace is that Jesus became a nobody so that we could be known and have a place at the table. That is why the table is here. When we invite someone to join us at the table, we're no longer beneath. They're no longer beneath us. At the table, we are face to face, heart to heart, brothers and sisters, Jesus said on John uh, 13 verse 15, he says, I have set you an example so you would do the same for another person. How can we follow the example of Jesus? How is it even possible to live as a foot washer while our own hunger and our own compulsion and our own uh, desire to matter and to be the greatest? When I read John 13, or when I read John 13, I was so aware of my own missing the mark. And that's why we're here, to get a new start or to start over through the Last Supper. That is why we're here today, to start over with Jesus and to start over with each other. Today is our turn, your turn. Jesus is kneeling at your feet. And he holds the worst part of us, the dirtiest part of us. And uh, the chip nails or the hole in the hose and the the deformed big toes, nothing impresses Jesus and nothing grosses him out. He takes us as we are. He sees us, he knows us, and he loves us completely. And the thing is, he asks us to do the same for another, but we can't, not until we can perceive that the God who made the whole world and the universe is also the God who kneels at our feet. So he looks up at us, he looks up at you and says, you are known to me, you are famous to me. And at that moment, nothing else matters. Uh, What people thought of you or, or what that person you thought you could live without thought of you, we were set free to see others, to know them, and to love them as Jesus does. Philippians 2 says that at his very name, at the very name of Jesus, that every knee shall bow. We can't help it. We can't help but bow at such love.